You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And today I'm joined by a special guest. I'm joined today by uh, Tobias Harris, who is vice president and a Japan analyst for Taneo Intelligence. And he's also an economy, trade, and business fellow at Sasakawa USA, where he does a, um, an interesting polling average on Japanese politics. Anyways, Tobias, I'm really glad to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me today. No, thanks for having me, Ankit. This is great. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, Japanese politics have gotten really interesting. But before we dive into that, I did want to give you a bit to kind of, you know, just talk a bit about your work, uh, especially this polling average you do is um, pretty unique in the world of Japan politics, uh, makes it kind of accessible for those of us who aren't Japanese speakers and not necessarily following the Japanese language press to kind of get a sense of what's going on in the country. So do you want to tell us a bit about what you do there? Sure. So the Japan political polls for Sasakawa USA, um, Basically, just one thing I found myself doing was just reading lots of polls. You know, Japan is a country where, I mean, look, in any in any democracy, public opinion matters, public opinion polls matter. But I noticed at some point that they just seem to take on a kind of um, special importance in Japanese politics. Every new poll changes the discussion in some ways. It really, um, you know, the, it, it it shapes rea- they shape reality in ways that even you know in American politics, everyone kind of will respond to polls, but, you know, the people who are on one side shrug them off, the other side say, look, look what the polls are saying. And in Japan, you really have um, polls will come out and everyone kind of responds to it. And it changes the balance of power in all sorts of interesting ways. And so, you know, I was reading lots of polls and realized that, you know, why not just do an average? You know, I'm not Nate Silver. It's nothing terribly sophisticated. It's just a 10-day moving average. And I... um, basically adjust the sample the further we get from when the poll was taken poll was taken i take polls from seven major pollsters and put it together and it just gives you a better picture than any one particular poll because people will will say oh the kyoto poll said this or the nhk poll said this and you know and, and they all ask the same question do you or don't you approve of the cabinet at any given time mm-hmm. so it's pretty easy to just dump that into a common sample you get a, a bigger sample and and i feel it tells you something important and actually as part of that i also just will generally a couple times a month do kind of a longer analytical piece that looks at some of the interesting data points in the polls that we've seen in the recent in recent weeks so i had a big one the day that abe announced that he was going to dissolve the diet and call an election that looked at basically what the last two months of polls showed us that enabled him to come to that decision, you know, why he felt confident in making that decision. So that's the kind of thing I do with Japan Political Pulse. It's, um, it's kind of a fun project. And I think it's important. I think it's important in D.C. in particular for people who maybe aren't really Japan watchers but want to know what's going on with Japan or dealing with the Japanese government in some capacity to know what's going on behind their, when you're sitting across the table from a Japanese politician, what sort of context are they working in? And the polls tell you a lot of that. Absolutely. Um, and I should note for our listeners that Tobias has, um, he runs one of my favorite kind of Twitter accounts, I guess, on Japan. Um, he's constantly tweeting about articles and things that he finds interesting, a lot of it in the Japanese language, which I don't have. So I find that to be quite useful. Um, and every time I kind of travel to Japan, I'll kind of refer to what Tobias has been talking about. So uh, you're kind of my cheat sheet on Twitter a bit on, uh, <laughs> on Japanese domestic politics. Um, but yeah, we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, you kind of gave us a little bit of a hint uh, of you know what's on the agenda. So um, there will be a snap election in Japan later this month, on October 22nd. And Japanese politics have kind of gone all topsy-turvy. Um, if, for listeners who regularly listen to this podcast, you may recall we had Mina Pullman on a few uh, weeks ago. I guess it's been months now. Time flies uh, to talk about 
about, you know, scandal-ridden Abe in the summer, about the Morimoto and Kakegakuen um, scandals. And all that now seems like it's in the distant path. Um, Abe's um, obviously made this decision now to hold a new election. North Korea, in the meantime, has... Um, placed itself firmly at the top of the national security agenda in Japan um, and across most of the region and most of the world um, with two ballistic missile overflights of Japan on August 29th and um, September 15th. And um, yeah, that uh, is a big part of the picture right now. But also, Tobias, I want to get, you know, I want to talk a bit about something that doesn't really come up in a lot of discussions about Japanese politics in a while, which is the state of the opposition. <laughs> um, and I don't know where you want to start, actually. I kind of want to, you know, let you guide the conversation a bit. So what do you think, you know, should we maybe talk about why Abe decided decided to make this decision that he did in the first place? Let's start there, and then we'll talk a bit about the opposition later. Sure. So I think for the better part of this year, at least at the start of this year, there was a lot of discussion about Abe calling an early election. It's a way to renew his mandate for another four years, buy him some more time and power, make it harder for his liberal Democratic Party to deny him a third term as leader when he uh, when his second term ends in September of next year, and they changed the rules specifically so he could run for that third term. So you call an election, get you know, gets his party a new mandate. It would be a cakewalk because really the uh, Democratic Party had been polling or has been polling in the single digits for basically since the last time you had a general election. Uh, they have shown no ability to convince the public to... Um, to overcome, I think, some of the memories they have of when the Democratic Party of Japan was in power in 2012. They've never really had a good answer um, you know, to the, the policies and politics that Abe has presented the Japanese people. And, and that was how things looked right up until in February or March of this year. And that's when the scandals that you mentioned hit. And over the course of I mean, the really troublesome scandal was the Kakegakuen scandal because it just kept going and they didn't really have any answer to any of the allegations that were coming up. And so from, you know, I'd, ha I'd have to have my own poll aggregation in front of me, but from basically May or June through the beginning of August, Abe's approval ratings went from a peak of like an average of 60% and uh, it's a disapproval in the mid 20s. So he was, you know, plus 30 something. And by the beginning of August, when he reshuffled the cabinet on August 3rd, his approval ratings had fallen to something like at least negative 15, if not worse than that. Mm -hmm. So you had this huge swing. Um, and in the process, you got kind of a resumption of the, the traditional LDP way of governing Japan, which is you have a prime minister, but at the same time, he's doing battle with factions. He's doing fa battle with um, potential claimants to the throne. He's, you know, he's, he's um, got his hands full with um, intra-party politics and all the and Abe basically pushed that away for years um, and you had this stable government this um, consistent government you had people staying uh, in cabinet positions for longer you had Abe just there um, going about his business and, and enjoying popularity and all of a sudden it looked like everything was falling you know the wheels were just falling off mm -hmm. and August comes and he reshuffles his cabinet he gets rid of a you know of a few problematic ministers. He says, you know, we're going to get serious about economics again. And of course, North Korea heats up again. And I think, you know, in the last piece I wrote for Japan Political Pulse, I mean, I think if you look at the actual text of polls, it's hard to say explicitly that, you know, there's not a question that says, you know, you know, I support Abe because of how he's handling the North Korea crisis. There's nothing that explicit. But the the North Korean crisis, a it took a lot of the scandal out of the you know out of the media. The media was not talking about them anymore, and that also was the case because the diet was in recess, 
and so no one was asking Abe uncomfortable questions in parliamentary hearings. So uh, you didn't have that, um, you know, those clips of, of lawmakers asking him, you know, how do you explain that you're, you know, you have all there are all these pictures of you with this guy who got uh, a nice deal from the government. Um, you know, so that that coverage went away anyway. Um, but I think North Korea filled that in. You got you know Abe meeting with foreign leaders. Abe being um, you know, kind of the, the tough, uh, globally oriented statesman, you know, a guy who's now been in power for almost five years and therefore, you know, has been, you know, is pretty much the most um, experienced leader in the G7 next to um, Angela Merkel. I mean, so you have, um, you know, sort of a, a more positive image, something that played to Abe's strengths, uh, you know, for the better part of August and September. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the polling on that, I mean, they did, the public does approve generally of the approach he's taken, you know, more pressure, uh, pushing diplomacy down the road, focusing on um, strengthening Japan's relationship with the United States, making sure that um, you know investing in in uh, robust, more robust missile defenses, uh, taking sort of a cautious approach to strengthening offensive capabilities. I mean, Abe has kind of been of two minds on that and is not committed to moving that debate forward. And I think that is consistent with what you see in public opinion. And so things started looking better. That. Uh, the narrative started to turn and it looked like, okay, he, you know, stability is making itself felt again and the public appreciates that. And at the same time, you also had in late July, uh, Ren Ho, who uh, actually ended up being a very disappointing leader of the Democratic Party. Um, but nevertheless, she was the leader of the Democratic Party. She resigned in July and the Democratic Party found itself in a new election campaign for the better part of August. And, you know, it was, it was actually, in retrospect, it ended up being... Um, a pretty divisive campaign in that you had a clearly liberal candidate, um, Edano Yukio, who used to, who lots of people might remember from the um, 2011 triple disasters when he was basically the face of the government, versus uh, the eventual winner, Maya Harasaji, who's been around Japanese politics for, uh, you know, for 25 years now, was a Democratic Party leader back in 2005, 2006, and had a very uh, short and uh, stormy tenure then, uh, served in a bunch of cabinet posts in the Democratic Party, was in power. So, I mean, you had you had these old faces, but they came from two distinct camps in the party. Um, and, and it preset, you know, it showed that just how, how um, at each other's throats in some ways the party was. Um, and really, we didn't even quite appreciate even as it was happening, because just seeing, well, okay, look, the Democrats can't agree on anything anymore. And then once the election was over in Maya Haro, one, you had immediately he had to back down from appointing um, sort of an up and coming politician um, as his policy chief because she had a, a sex scandal. And then you had this kind of trickle of conservative members of the Democratic Party leaving to join um, to join or to say that they were going to join ranks with Koike. Although at that point, she didn't really have a party yet. Um, and that trickle actually started before the before the election when um, another kind of up and coming a conservative politician, uh, Hosono Goshi, he left. And so you had this this sense that the party was just coming apart. It had no way of connecting with voters. Mayahara looked completely incapable of leading this party. He was just elected to lead. And I think from Abe's, you know, from where Abe was sitting, he was looking at this and, okay, his numbers were trending in the right direction. People were sort of forgetting about the scandals, maybe. And the Democratic Party was completely hopeless. And you, you still really didn't have signs of how Koike was going to get a party ready before an election, particularly if you had an election as early as mm-hmm. late October. Yeah. And so, you know, mid-September, you start hearing the rumors, and they finally eventually snowball into Abe saying that he's going to call an election. 
Um, and, and so it is as much because, you know, that window of opportunity appeared to be there as anything else. All right. Well, Tobias, I think you just answered like two or three more <laughs> questions that I had. But that was that was quite the tour of the force of um, everything that's really happened in Japanese politics up to this point. Um, I don't think it can really get more thorough than that. And I think you spoke for about seven minutes, but uh, that was a lot of info. Um, I'm actually I'm honestly really impressed with the level of detail you're able to offer just kind of on the fly. Um, so, you know, uh, I did want to talk a bit about the um, the LDP first. We'll come back to the opposition because I think, uh, you know, Koike's new party is obviously interesting. They're kind of these misleading kind of comparisons that you see, uh, kind of, you know, making her out to be something like a Japanese Macron, kind of suggesting that she's the one to kind of upend Japan's old um, two-party or two-ish party system of politics mm -hmm. uh, for a while. So we can talk a bit about that later. Um, but I want to ask you, you know, the LDP just put out their manifesto, um, all these issues that you brought up, including offensive strike capabilities, North Korea, um, constitutional revision are in there, everything we'd expect to see in an LDP manifesto. Um, and, you know, you did bring up the, the issue of offensive strike, which I thought was interesting, um, especially with the return of um, Itsunori Onodera as the defense minister again. Um, he's been a particularly vocal proponent of, you know, platforms like Aegis Sure, um, which Japan is now actively looking at. It's in the new um, budget request for next year. Um, so, you know, looking at the LDP's uh, platform and kind of, uh, you know, taking into account the geopolitical conditions today in Northeast Asia, um, did you um, did you see any real surprises in there? So, for for some reason, it doesn't look like the uh, and the LDP has not made the full text available yet. So, I you know, all we've really seen is an outline, um, but. Yeah, for a party, obviously for a party that's now been in government for for almost five years, and you know, in a lot of in a lot of areas, can justifiably claim to have had some successes. Um, it's not a manifesto that's really rocking the boat. I mean, at least not um, as far as foreign and security policy go. I mean, there there is much. It's as much about um, reinforcing the approach that they've been taking than signaling new directions that they're going. I mean, there was a line in in the outline I read that said something about strengthening deterrent power, but that could mean a lot of different things. And they're not, um, you know, I, I don't think in the course of an election campaign is going to be the time right. uh, that they make, you know, what I think for Japan would be a fateful decision to move ahead, even with just the debate about um, strike, capabilities, strike capabilities in a formal setting. Um, you know, so they're not there yet. Um, you know, and, and, and again, it's, a lot of it's going to depend on what, tolerant public opinion is going to have for that kind of move right. and seeing it as necessary. I mean, I think, you know, public opinion on it is, um, when we've seen it earlier this year is pretty divided on it. Um, you know, and, and I think it's the kind of thing that depending on how it's handled, you know, that needle can move into opposition, um, pretty easily depending on the circumstances. And so, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see more clarity on that during the campaign, you know, and frankly, um, you know, just to touch on the opposition a little bit, I mean, the Party of Hope, um, you know, it's got a lot of conservatives, a lot of people, you know, not just conservatives, but people who have made national security issues their focus. Um, you know, and even even they, I mean, obviously it's early days, the party's only a week old. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not necessarily expecting that we're going to see, uh, you know, them staking out a position much further beyond where the LDP is now. So, um, yeah, I mean, right now, I think, you know, I, I would expect the LDP to run a you know pretty cautious campaign on this issue. Right, right. I mean, you know, as you noted, it seems like the public 
again, likes what Abe and the LDP are selling. So uh, there's no real need to change the recipe at this point. Um, even, you know, after the election, those details can be hammered out um, on expects. Um, so let's uh, talk a bit more about the opposition in detail. Um, you know, these comparisons that we've seen about Koike as being and her party being kind of the new en marche in uh, global politics, the, the <laughs> kind of, you know, out of the blue national level political party to challenge Abe. Um, do you think that's overblown for now? Do we see kind of the polling numbers to suggest that this is going to be a competitive election um, for her party and it could land her, if not in the prime minister's seat, in a position to really stage a kind of multi-year challenge to the LDP's national level dominance? So the, I think the thing the thing to start with is the fact, is just noting the fact that, you know, so Abe, you know, September 25th announces that he's going to call a snap election. And since then, two new opposition parties have, have formed out of basically the wreckage um, of the Democratic Party. And so you've had this in, incredibly stable situation for several years. And then in the last week, I mean, every day has been something new. I mean, it's been one of the, I, I mean, I don't remember a week like this. It's been a very long time, um, you know, as, as you know, someone who's been watching Japanese politics, there's really been anything like this. Um, so, you know, we're, we're in this tremendously fluid situation. So you have the party of hope. Um, this was, you know, so Koike, um, you know, just, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not going to give her a whole background, but, you know, she, under Abe, you know, obviously everyone remembers that she was his national security advisor the first time he was prime minister, and she briefly served as defense minister under him um, until he resigned in 2007, um, or, you know, kind of towards the end of, of that tenure. Um, but when Abe came back into power in, in December 2012, Koike basically was on the outs with him that she had backed um different candidates and in, in uh leader in the leadership election and, and she was she was not in his circle and when you look at i mean you look at the jobs she's held um over the past five years she was not a top tier cabinet minister under abe and so along comes um 2016 and you have a, a tokyo election and she um you know, she made a you know a huge gamble basically that looking that under you know as long as Abe was in charge she wasn't going anywhere, and so she left the diet she ran for the Tokyo governorship against um you know against the LDP and and won and then used that as the basis for starting a new party that had a, a really um, strong victory against the LDP in July in the Tokyo uh, Metropolitan Assembly election so you know she's been staking out this position. Um, and but it wasn't it wasn't exactly clear how she would turn to national politics. You know what, you know, you know. On the one hand, we've seen, you know, this 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 has been done before. You know, not too long ago, um, you know, you had uh, the the Hashimoto phenomenon. Um, Osaka Governor Hashimoto Toru, you know, was this phenomenon, and it looked like he was going to be the one to upend Japanese politics. And he created, um, you know, his his. Um, Japan Restoration Party, and it looked like it was going to be the new third force in Japanese politics. This is, you know, back in, um, you know, the earlier parts of this, the earlier years of this decade, um, and that movement never really went national. You know, he had this this urban base that just never, it, you know, it it it's still a force. I mean, it still is a really tough party to beat in Osaka and the area around Osaka, but it never really became um, kind of a, a player on a national scale. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you, you know, there was certainly speculation that Koike, maybe she you know, follows that route or maybe she waits a little longer. She tries to, um, 
you know, she's you know, obviously has this big task on her hands as far as um, the 2020 Olympics go and, and making sure the Olympics are successful and the costs don't go um, go completely crazy. Um, you know, she's had to manage this issue with the, the fish, the famous fish market in, to- in Tokyo Skiji. Um, you know, she's had a lot on her plate in Tokyo, and so it seemed that maybe she'd hold back a little bit. And then, you know, over the course of the summer, it looked like, okay, maybe there's a, na- a national movement uh, maybe coming into being, but maybe it'll be kind of a party she's not directly involved with, sort of carrying her issues forward. It's Tokyo-based, but it's not going to be a big player. And then all of a sudden, on September 25th, she says, we're creating a party. It's the party of hope. I'm going to lead it, but I will also stay as the governor of Tokyo. Um, and we can talk a little bit about that decision and what she's thinking with that. Um, and it's this party that, and, you know, and again, in a lot of ways, looks a lot like Hashimoto's um, restoration party in that it's it's talking about reform as conservative. It's a, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I like to call it Japan's urban populism because it is populism of a sort. It's going after, you know, it's naming your enemies and attacking them and using kind of pretty simple um you know, straightforward, you know, straight talking communication strategies. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that Koizumi did when he was uh, leader of the LDP back in the early 2000s. Uh, to some extent, it's the kind of thing that uh, the Ozawa-led DPJ used to take power in 2009. I mean, this this is a, a tried and true playbook um, that she's kind of taking for a spin again this time around. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think I think that kind of, you know, matches the assessment I kind of had of this situation. You know, I thought a lot of the analysis you see out there from, you know, analysts who don't really follow Japan is kind of uh, a little misguided about the prospects of, of where this is all going. Um, I did want to take the remaining time we have on this episode to just kind of, you know, get your thoughts a little bit on um, some of the geopolitical and national security questions um, that the Japanese people and obviously the Abe government um are, are wrangling with. We've talked about it a little on this podcast already, uh, but you know, so the White House has confirmed that President Trump's going to be traveling to Asia. Uh, he'll be he'll be in Japan, where Abe no doubt will be looking for a, a strong bout of kind of extended deterrence, anti-decoupling, um, you know, sh- showing off that all is well in the alliance. Um, if, if Abe is still around then, obviously, uh, which appears likely at this point. Um, but I wanted to ask you a bit about, you know, the Japanese public, obviously, um, watching two ballistic missiles, North Korean Hwasong-12 intermediate range ballistic missiles that are designed to carry nuclear weapons. You know, that's the big difference that I draw from the 1998, 2009, 2012, and 2016 overflights, that those were satellite launch vehicles that North Korea had never actually designed to deliver nuclear weapons to targets. But the missiles that it flew over Japan um, in the past months were explicitly designed to deliver what North Korea called large size heavy nuclear warheads. And obviously that's just brought this entire situation with North Korea to a completely different level for Japan. We're currently talking about a potential atmospheric nuclear test in the Pacific. Um, obviously this threat is at an unprecedented level and the Japanese public um, no doubt is um, reacting to this, right? They've set up the ballistic missile evacuation procedures, national alert systems. We've seen videos of alerts going off in Hokkaido as these missiles fly over. Um, you know, tell us a bit about how how the North Korea issue is really coming to bear on Japanese politics. Uh, and, you know, you can address that however you like. If you think public opinion is the best way to talk about that or or in terms of what the LDP is thinking. Um, but, you know, what are your what are your thoughts on that? So, you know, starting with starting with public opinion, I mean, I think there's a. You know, in some ways, I, I, I wonder whether the full implications of what it means when, you know, you know, 
you know, and actually you're assuming that North Korea can already do it, but what, you know, North Korea being able to strike the United States, I, I'm guessing that like, that hasn't really sunk in yet, you know, and the full implications of that, you know, and that, that, um, you know, that, that they look, you know, they're sort of listening for cues from, from their leaders and listening, you know, listening for cues from the prime minister. Um, and, you know, instinctively, you know, I, 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 you know, they don't want, uh, to be in a situation where I think Japan is waging offensive war. And I, you know, and I still think a lot of Japanese are uncomfortable with that. Um, you know, and, and, you know, at this point, I think they support the government doing what, um, is tried and familiar that, you know, you rely on the U S you make sure that the U S uh, can continue you know, is continues to be a, a steadfast ally and continues to provide extended deterrence and continues to you know to show its commitment through to to Japan's defense through its bases. Um, you know, I think support, as far as I can tell, support for missile defense, whether it um, whether it works or not, is is strong, and uh, people continue to support invest you know investment in that. Um, you know, I think there's a little. You know, I think there's there's kind of an underbelly of um, dark humor about some of the civil defense measures and whether it's um, you know whether it's actually working. But you know, I think people are going along with it and, and see it as kind of part of a, you know sort of a natural response uh, to what's happening. And, and beyond that, I mean, I, I don't think um, you know obviously at the elite level, I think there are people who are grappling with the risks of decoupling and what that means and what that might uh, you know where that might leave Japan. But I think at a public popular level. Um, you know, let's put it this way. I mean, I looked at, there was a poll from a few years ago. It was one of the, one of the anniversaries of, um, you know, of, of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it was a big poll that NHK had done. And I mean, most of the public didn't even support the nuclear umbrella with the United States, where I'm guessing maybe now if you ask my question more, more explicitly, uh, people would say, sure, we're fine with it. You know, but the point is, I mean, I, th- I think there's not always, um, you know, not a desire to you know to really always think through the full implications of of um, you know, what it means that Japan is in fact defended by U.S. nuclear weapons, um, and that the U.S. has to be prepared to at least threaten their use. Um, it's not something that I think you know on any given day most you know, most Japanese don't want to spend don't want to think about that. It's kind of an uncomfortable thing to think about, mm-hmm. um, and you know there's not I th- there hasn't really been a whole lot of movement on that. I mean I think you had this moment during the summer where uh, Ishiba Shigeru, who has made no secret of his desire to uh, succeed or replace Abe, um, you know, tried to say, well, we need to have a debate about revising our three non-nuclear principles where we won't um, uh, possess, uh, possess, use, or you know, allow on our, on our territory um, nuclear weapons, um, you know, that maybe we should make it just, we should make it two. You know that that okay. We're not gonna we're not gonna ha- or we're not gonna build. We're not gonna have them our, our, of our on our own. But maybe we should let the U.S. deploy its its nuclear weapons to our soil, and um, and that debate went nowhere. No one no one wanted to take him up on his offer. I mean, he kind of kept hmm. repeating it a few times, but no one seems interested in actually um, engaging in that discussion. And you know that still seems to be kind of the dominant sentiment. And, you know, and I think if there were clearer signs of you know, maybe we can't rely on the U.S. You know, I mean, I, I don't even um, kind of shudder to think about the kind of incident that might lead to that. But nevertheless, I mean, I think it will take something, um, you know, you know, epochal, you know, some event that is just so jarring and and 
um, at odds with everything that has come before to really get people to think, okay, the status quo is not working anymore. But right now, I mean, I think until that moment comes, I, you know, I think there's, there's, um, dare I say, a complacency um, on the part of the public, you know, and, and sort of a hope that kind of this mix of, of you know, diplomacy with every other country except North Korea and sanctions and you know, looking for extended uh, deterrence guarantees from the United States that somehow you can get this mix to work if you just keep at it. Um, but you know, there's still not kind of a public push beyond going further and finding, um, you know, and, and, you know, even with com- new conventional cap- capabilities, there's not that public push yet. Right, right. And, you know, it really seems like at the elite level, this is what's happening right now. And, you know, things are really shaking out with North Korea right now. Nobody really knows where things are going to be a year from now. I mean, capabilities wise, we we have a pretty good idea about where North Korea will be when it comes to its actual ballistic missile and nuclear capabilities. But we don't know, you know, what the Trump administration is originally uh, ultimately going to decide. I mean, we've kind of seen, I mean, particularly these past few weeks, it's been um, it's been painful being a North Korea watcher. Um, but, you know, we're we're still waiting to see where things shake out. And I think, you know, the Japanese government, South Korean government are too. Um, I should quickly just uh, really briefly just explain what decoupling is since we explained it. Um, we, we mentioned it a couple times and it's a pretty important term to this discussion. Um, decoupling is basically an old Cold War era boogeyman um, that came up when the Soviet Union acquired ICBMs. Um, once the Soviets were able to hold the U.S. homeland at risk, um, Western European capitals, Paris, London, Bonn, had to assure themselves that the United States would still come to their assistance in a nuclear war. And that wasn't an easy task. It led to France briefly leaving NATO. Um, so that threat now exists in Northeast Asia with both South Korea and Japan independently because North Korea has shown itself to be capable of striking the U.S. homeland with an ICBM. So that's kind of why we've seen, you know, at the recent U.S.-Japan 2 plus 2 meeting, all of this extra attention to extended deterrence, um, a lot of kind of, you know, more than usual of the ironclad language in both alliances. And it's just going to be a trend from here on out. Just the um, the overall task of alliance reassurance is going to be all that more difficult for the United States. And um, Japan and South Korea will just be looking for all, all that more um, in terms of assurances more generally. Um, Tobias, do you have any closing thoughts for us today? I mean, I would just say that, so we're still uh, 10 days, well, now nine days in Japan, nine days until the official start of the campaign, um, and expect things to get you know, more turbulent. And, you know, I mentioned we didn't really uh, circle back to, but, you know, we've had two new parties created in the last week. You know, polls are showing that I think the public is still kind of trying to figure out what exactly is going on. Uh, there's a tremendous number of undecideds and, and independent voters, which, uh, you know, I mentioned that populist playbook in the past. That that playbook is geared to getting independents out to vote, um, you, know, for, you know, sort of for an untried or um, kind of unusual a political force and so you have all these people out there waiting to see how they're going to vote what they're going to do and it's possible that they're going to just stay home and we'll see an outcome that somewhat looks like 2014 when abe won uh, you know basically a second straight landslide victory but on the back of record low turn- turnout uh, or we could see something unusual and independents do turn out for these new parties and you get something a little more unpredictable um, and at that point then we have to wonder how much longer we're going to have abe around mm-hmm all right. Well, so I'll leave us on that. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for joining me today. No, my pleasure, really. Absolutely. So that was Tobias Harris, um, and he runs a great Twitter account at Observing Japan. I uh, really recommend you guys follow him if you're interested in kind of more detail in Japanese politics than you ever knew you wanted. <laughs>
<laughs> um, all right, Tobias. Well, thanks for joining me. And uh, for our listeners, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so. Uh, it really helps um, get our subscription numbers up, get the word out about the podcast, and do leave us a review. It also uh, really helps the podcast on iTunes. Thanks a lot for listening.